This is an RNZ podcast. Cancer Care was at the top of Duncan Garner's list for his weekly Q&A with the PM last Tuesday. But when he was done with that, he asked her this. OK, now, um, right, let's talk about um, the TV industry. Can you save the TV industry? Where, where are we at with the media? Can you save the media industry? <laughs> oh, well, it probably um, it's, it's good asking you about that as, as it is um, me, Duncan. And it didn't sound much like Jacinda Ardern was expecting to be asked to save the media industry, television in particular. But plans for the media are on her government's to-do list. We know that we have work to do in this space. Our focus has been on public broadcasting. Um, that's, you know, that's an area where we have some responsibility because, of course, we want to make sure that people are able to access uh, high-quality information, that they can tell their own stories, and uh, that's something we've long said that we wanted to take a look at. Chris Farfoy is the one who's doing the work on that at the moment. Chris Farfoy being the current Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media. Now, he's currently mulling over a reset of this government's public funding broadcasting policy because the one they went into the election with has been junked. And now he's also under heavy pressure to help private media companies enduring tight financial times for the industry. Indeed, on his show last month, Duncan Garner called on the minister, a former rival TV reporter, for help. Mr Farfoy, please help us. Climate change, yes. The climate has changed. You're doing. Don't kill us at the same time. Change the game. Make it fairer, please. Duncan Garner went on to say that all news media players are currently in the same sinking ship. This is not sour grapes. NZME, Fairfax, we can only contract. We, we, we can't compete. We can't compete when the other guy's rules are, are different. Ultimately, we die. But the same day, his news boss, Hal Crawford, and the chief executive at MediaWorks, Michael Anderson, reinforced that message out loud in public. If things are bad in the media company's boardrooms, the newsroom usually feels the pain. And it's not just here, but all around the world, that big names that have dominated the national media in the past are suddenly something of a sunset industry in the digital age. Watching all this play out from London is Melanie Bunce. She cut her teeth in journalism at the Otago Daily Times and now she teaches and researches it at one of the UK's most prestigious journalism schools, City University. She's been surveying the state of New Zealand's media for a book published this week by Bridget Williams Books. It's called The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World and it's billed as a much-needed assessment of the future for New Zealand journalism in a troubled world. At the end of the book, Melanie Bunce made the point that corporations were deemed too big to fail in the global financial crisis a decade ago. And she told me that journalism is too important to fail now. The media really underpins so many of our democratic institutions. So it's not just operating in a silo, doing its own thing, you know, sharing the news and, and talking to audiences. It's actually completely essential for all of the other parts of the democratic system to work. So... For us to be able to cast a meaningful vote, we have to have information, and that comes from the media, and to know how our politicians are behaving and what they're up to and to kind of flush out those who are more corrupt or not doing a great job. And finally, we really need the media to give us a space as citizens to discuss and deliberate and raise our concerns so that political figures can, can act. Are you actually suggesting that the state, uh, governments around the world, should keep the news media alive if it looks like they're going to collapse? Yeah, I do, absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I believe that much more than I think I believe that the financial institutions needed to be bailed out. The, the commercial model was failing, and in places where it really does seem to be failing, um, in particular, I think, in regional and local journalism, um, we're seeing a total market failure around the world. And I think it's really crucial that we do step in to intervene. 
in those situations. Well, you pick uh, 2016 as a moment where you said these are your words. It became clear that traditional journalism was failing, which is quite dramatic. But why? Why 2016? <laughs> I think 2016 was when we saw the consequences of some trends that had been going on for a long time. So we saw that a lot of um, news organizations were failing to make money and closing down, um, especially across the US, where 2,000 news organizations, by some estimates, closed down between 2004 and 2014. So there had been these trends going on for a long time where you'd got more and more news organizations shutting down. And at the same time, you know, citizens were really polarised, really conflicted about um, the US election and the UK, the kind of debate and campaign around Brexit earlier in the year. And both of those elections were run on one on absolute knife edges. So tiny, tiny minority, um, you know, could have shifted the outcome one way or the other. And in the background of all of that was this disinformation and these um, targeted falsehoods online. And I think it became clear to a lot of us that if we could get a handle on these new information flows, if we couldn't get a handle on that, um, then we weren't having meaningful votes anymore. Because, um, as others have noticed, you know, and commented that people were voting on the basis of lies. Well, in your book, you look at New Zealand journalism today within this global context that we've talked about, these current trends. (laughs) Um, One chapter of it is dedicated to looking at, well, how... Uh, it performs key functions that the vital roles of collecting and verifying information, holding elites to account, providing a forum for public debate. Those are three key functions you identify. So what are your conclusions then about New Zealand journalism today in 2019 as far as those three things go? I, th- I think there are lots of strengths in New Zealand journalism and lots of fantastic work being done. So New Zealand has fantastic national news. We see really good features and analysis. Um, there's lots of strong pieces But there's also a lot of uh, newspapers closing down in the regions. There's a lot of journalists being cut. According to the census, 60% of print journalists were cut between the last two censuses. And we're also seeing the neglect of global news. So it's very uncommon to see original uh, news about international issues being made by the New Zealand media because it's just so expensive. I also considered whether it's doing a good job of being critical. We see lots of press releases and publicity teams who are able to influence journalists that don't have enough time to do critical work anymore. So although there's some good work and there's lots of new organisations doing some great stuff, it's not necessarily being done systematically. But you also say, Melanie, uh, in your words here again, somewhat confusingly, Mm -hmm. in some areas, journalism is better today than it's ever been. Uh, Cast the net around New Zealand media in 2019, you see some of the best journalism that's ever been made in this country. What are the sources of this this good stuff? We're seeing multimedia interactive journalism that was never possible in the past. Things like uh, Stuff's website work on the treaty um, that came out in 2018, a great interactive piece about important New Zealand history. Um, we're also seeing investigative journalists being able to do crowdsourcing work. And I think there's also a lot of really funny, diverse content that we never had, you know, because it's fun, irreverent content that's representing more diverse groups. You know, we now have, as you've mentioned, uh, online startups, things like Newsroom, for example, with a staff of 16 or 17 that are conducting significant public interest investigations that have had a national impact. Do you think these can actually fill the void if traditional news media companies like Stuff, if they go out of business or just stop doing the news? You know, Newsroom and Spinoff and some of these new organisations are winning prizes, national prizes for their fantastic journalism. Uh, Newsroom's doing great um, investigative stuff led by Melanie Reid, but it's uh, not 
spread around the country um, and it's not necessarily able to do kind of, as I mentioned before, that routine scrutiny. And, and they themselves, are, you know, acknowledge that and they're not trying to do day-to-day -day news coverage of courts and councils and these really important local democratic issues. News organisations can succeed in, in spite of the challenges, of course. Um, um, things I talk about in the book is, is that the nature of ownership matters a lot when it comes to the media. And so when we have news organisations that have more flexibility, say they are backed up by the state or they are owned by someone that really believes in the media, then they tend to have a lot more flexibility to really experiment with their model, try out new things. Um, it's when news organisations are owned by for-profit financial companies, which quite a lot of our media is, um, and they are obliged to return profits to their shareholders. And, and it's much harder for them to justify investing in journalism that doesn't make money. Well, well, you've also made the point really strongly in the book, one reason why New Zealand journalism is particularly vulnerable is that we have li mm -hmm. very little publicly funded media to fall back on. However, the government now spends almost a quarter of a billion dollars, just under $250 million a year now, on broadcasting to all its various outlets and agencies. In Australia, they I think the total bill for their three publicly owned networks, that's about 1.1, 1.2 billion Australian dollars, mm -hmm. give or take. To me, that works out about the same per capita. Is the problem mm -hmm. in New Zealand really the money or how are we spending it? I don't think we want to compare ourselves to Australia. They are also having made a few cuts over the last five years or so. New Zealand and Australia are far, far below the UK and um, certainly the Scandinavian countries and Ireland and many others that spend a lot more on public broadcasting. A good chunk of that is going into Māori TV, which is Māori media more generally, which is really important. Um, but you could argue that that shouldn't be included in the figures in quite the same way because it's set up with quite a different remit. It's set up to promote Māori language and culture, and it's done as part of our obligations under the Treaty of Waitangi. And that's a wider remit than journalism and what are we doing to support reporters out on the street that are collecting information and, and making it available to the public. Um, and so then after that, we've got Radio New Zealand, which I think is doing great work, quite an anomaly um, amongst a lot of countries that TVNZ is, is run on a commercial model. And New Zealand On Air is also a quite an unusual uh, model of funding allocation because it tends to fund ad hoc work, kind of one-off projects or series, but that's not quite the same as supporting the infrastructure of the news, you know, the day-to-day -day reporting. The current government has effectively paused broadcasting policy and the minister, Chris Farfoy, is now signalled he's pondering all these issues of media plurality, the urgent financial problems of commercial media companies, which have been flagged up to him by the top brass of those companies, that things aren't sustainable. Uh, they're going to come back with something, they say, by the end of the year. We might know what they're planning. But in the meantime, I mean, what do you think the government should do? Maybe the top two or three things it should do um, if it's going to completely reform how it puts public money into the media. I mean, the two big models that I've seen floated, both of which I think have lots of potential, is doing diff different stuff with um, TV1 and making it non-commercial potentially, and the other one being a kind of expanded Radio New Zealand RNZ that's much more multimedia. Um, so I think both of those have potential. We need to think hard if anyone's doing any investment for the long run about where the audience is in the places they want it online, where they have control over when they watch it or listen to it. Um, and the other thing I think is really important to consider is, is focusing on exactly where the market is failing. 
Um, and so that might not be ad hoc funding for feature journalism. It's, I think, again, thinking about, well, how do we support local media, really critical scrutinies of, of powerful institutions. What sort of structure do you think will work for New Zealand if we have yeah, this, this weird state-owned but effectively commercial TV network, which isn't a public <laughs> asset really, a fairly basically funded Radio New Zealand operation and these struggling commercial news media companies, which are still important in our whole news ecosystem, if I can put it like that. What would work? The creation of some new public entity or or is the minister going to have to think about directly propping up or even buying um, one of these uh, commercial media organisations like, for example, staff? You need to see the numbers of the different news organisations and how they're doing. I hadn't thought about the purchase of stuff. That seems a little bit left field to me. I think if you were starting from scratch and designing from the ground up, you would build uh, something that had a nationwide presence and multimedia capacity and hopefully not a very strong culture of being really commercially focused. You know, you can paint in the details. It's just about resources and well-trained journalists. Are there any uh, models or developments in the overseas media that you've seen that might give New Zealand any kind of template for tackling the problems? Uh, at one point in the book, you refer to Ireland, you know, population almost identical size, island nation with a bigger neighbour off to the side um, and they've got eight national newspapers lots of metro and local journalism you point out we don't have that I think Ireland is struggling in many of the same ways we are I mean they're they do have more newspapers um, for a variety of reasons, partly because they have Irish editions of, of UK newspapers so that's just kind of a proximity to the, the UK market but certainly their circulation is going down um, very sharply um, and they are, are needing to reinvent themselves um, at news outlets across the country. They do have a, a well-funded, well-loved, um, much more comprehensive public service offering in RTE, and I think it is probably a better model than what we've done historically. But it also will need to be rethinking itself as it kind of moves more of its content online, I'm sure. I would say that, as always, the Scandinavian countries are doing very well. Finland and Norway both spend, you know, significant amount in Sweden, huge amounts of money on the media in a way that we don't um, and have hugely high levels of trust in the media in a way that other countries don't um, link to that, I think. Um, there is one model that I also talk about in the book as, as I think being very positive that we're already experimenting with in New Zealand, and that's the local democracy reporter scheme. Uh, it's just a small pilot in New Zealand. It's based on a BBC or um, overseen one here where journalists are paid for by the government, but they're kind of implanted into commercial newsrooms or, or non-commercial newsrooms that want them. And then the news that they make is shared up and down the country. And I think that's a pretty positive model in some ways. It's only it's not going to solve all of the problems, but it's both making sure some of that local journalism gets done without really, I think, undermining the commercial news outlets that are, are struggling. And I think that's quite an elegant solution. You even suggested at one point in the book this could be scaled up into something of a, akin to, well, the New Zealand Press Association, the old cooperative um, news gathering mm -hmm. uh, effort, which um, shut down, I think, 2011 or so. So effectively, the major newspaper publishers of the time didn't really want it, and they were bearing most of the burden of of keeping it going. But do you think in this new environment that is something, a, a kind of shared, nationally available uh, reporting service which, which goes outside the metropolitan regions, that could be something that should be backed by either the individual media organisations or by the government in this big review of theirs? 
Yeah, I really do. I think that's one of the things that's really missing from New Zealand. And I'm sure lots of people didn't even kind of talk about it too much and aren't necessarily even sure what it is, but I think it provided an absolute backbone. You know, it shared news up and down the country. Um, there are also journalists working on creating original news. Um, it was done on a kind of cooperative model. So, you know, you're a journalist in Invercargill, you can republish the news that's coming out of Northland. Um, and I think that that's really healthy um, in a country um, as big and diverse as ours, even though we're quite small, there's obviously a really wide range of things going on. And I think that news organisation, in whatever form it takes, could also do a little bit more to report on the world from a New Zealand angle. Um, one of the things I talk about is there is a real absence of global reporting done that highlights its relevance to New Zealand and our contribution. And that's so important. All these issues, climate change, migration, terrorism, they obviously affect us and we have to grapple with them. And being able to talk about them around the news through the New Zealand lens, I think is so important. Yeah, and particularly in this region, right, the South Pacific, where, you know, you can't just go to New York Times or Guardian.com or whatever and because uh, they don't really have that focus. Exactly. Absolutely. It's been pointed out uh, that while journalists and uh, researchers like yourself ponder these issues a lot, the media are now discussing them a lot more and kind of waking the public mm -hmm. up to the fact that the current media environment isn't sustainable in the form that we've known it for so long. Um, but what the mm -hmm. audience wants is often missing from the debate. I think we kind of do and don't need to take the audience really, really seriously. So on the one hand, we do because... One of the models that's working a little bit overseas is these membership models or subscriptions or donations, um, trying to provide news that is really engaging to people and has so much kind of use and value to them that they're willing to pay for it. And so we need to really think a lot more about the audience in that regard. And we see, you know, news organisations in New Zealand that are introducing paywalls. They're definitely doing that thinking, you know, what can they do that people will pay for? But at the same time, we also need news that the, the audience isn't crazy about. You know, we know that some of the most important news, like I keep going back to it, but scrutinizing local council spending, that's not something that usually gets people excited um, or that they want to pay for. But it's really important to us still that that news is being made, even if people don't read it um, that much, which sounds ridiculous. But we know from quite a lot of research, just having those journalists present and making that news makes those councillors more honest. Well, Melanie, just finally, uh, we started by talking about 2016 and that being a year where you think crystallised a lot of the problems with the media that need to be confronted, in part because, you know, you had a Brexit vote where when it was all done, people worried about the, you know, the lack of clear reporting and uh, the balance with misinformation and fake news and so on. Um, mm -hmm. Are you ready for another election then in the UK? Because it looks <laughs> like you might be having one with uh, that same issue of Brexit in the background. Yeah, no, I, I am certainly not personally ready for another election. Um, and, and I know, but on a serious note, um, I don't think the media is ready for another election. I mean, we are still here unpackaging the questions around, you know, the involvement of groups like Cambridge Analytica and how targeted adverts were taking place on, on social media that were full of misinformation and, and, and people that were breaching um, electoral spending laws to advertise uh, to the audience. So there's a lot that still needs to be sorted out. And I'm afraid I don't have too much hope that we'll be able to do that by October the 14th. So um, it's going to be a really kind of crucial election to watch, I think. And of course, we'll have one here in New Zealand next year. You make the point that misinformation hasn't been huge in New Zealand because we're protected somewhat ironically because it's almost impossible to make money with audience clicks in New Zealand, <laughs> regardless of whether a story is true or fake. But 
for those not trying to make money, just trying to sway public opinion, are we perhaps mm. wide open to that? Uh, we've already seen it in recent weeks, a lot of meme-style social media advertising, which is um, a bit uh, uh, oversimplistic or loose with the truth or sometimes outright misleading here. Do we have to worry about this next year? Yeah, I think so. Um, we are protected from kind of fake news in that narrow sense of people talking about people creating fake websites and fabricating whole stories. This one, like the the Pope endorsing Trump in 2016, it was very popular. But of course, we're still getting information online and from Facebook groups to Reddit to Mumsnet to any blog you come across on the internet, there's a high risk that you'll come across misinformation, exaggerations, rumors, people uh, intentionally or unintentionally trying to mislead people. Um, and that's something that we're seeing uh, more and more concern around. I mean, we've got a, a, a measles outbreak that people are saying is linked to you know, misunderstandings about vaccines. It's a classic example of this problem. Um, and it will certainly, uh, I would think, be an issue to watch out for in the election. That was Melanie Bunce, a reader in journalism at City University in London and the author of The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World, published this week by Bridget Williams Books.